Amen. All right, you may be seated. Uh, Again, welcome to Mercy Fellowship, where we are saved by Jesus' work. We are changed by Jesus' grace, and we are living on Jesus' mission. And that means that we believe that we exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ, who love God and who love people. So happy Easter, happy Resurrection Day. We're, we're so glad that you're here in person. It's so great to see your faces. If you're with us online, we're glad that you're gathering with us um, as well. Uh, and, and so this is just a, a day of, of celebration, of, of remembering, of looking back. So while we usually preach right through books of the Bible or kind of in a sermon series, like this past week and this week and, and this Sunday are, are unique and set apart because we've been looking specifically at Jesus' path to the cross, where he, he came in and in, in triumph into Jerusalem, only to bear defeat on the cross on Friday. Yesterday was Saturday, which is kind of a, a day of contemplation, a day of, of wrestling, a day of anticipation, and today is a day of celebration. And so we're remembering that Jesus is victorious because he did resurrect from the dead. And so Jesus is our Savior King. He is our Christ. He is our Messiah. He is the Savior of God's people. He is a King who was crucified for his people. He is the Christ who is risen for his people. And so um, this is not just significant for Christians. So maybe this is your first Sunday back after, uh, you know, a year of kind of social distancing. Maybe you had some family member bribe you with donuts. I think we still have some leftovers for after service, so that's good for you. And so wherever you came in or however you come in and join us today, I want you to ask yourself, Why do you believe what you believe? Like, what are the things that you've placed hope in, find identity in, see purpose in? Where do you look to for those things? And and then then I want to ask you, why? Like, what are the, the things you've based your life of? Because the reality is, all of us, in some manner or form, are people of faith. Meaning, we've all placed our faith in something, or someone, or an idea, or a, a concept, and so uh, we all believe in something. We all come in as well with, with um, I, I love right now, if you go on social media and you post any article about anything, it's immediately fact-checked. Like, like uh, okay, you know, hey, peeps that are made of pumpkin spice latte came out, and like, everybody's excited. No, not everyone ex- is excited. Like, that is an unholy alliance as bad as little Nas X and Nike coming together, okay? Just not good, not good. But immediately, fact check, no, peeps are great. And you're like, what? Who wrote that fact check article? Peeps are terrible, okay? Like, that's, if you get one thing today, get that. No, no. So, like, but there's this idea in that fact check or in that, that, that idea that a third party's gonna come in, that, that there's this neutral, unbiased perspective, And do any of you come in today or engage in the world and think that you're not that perspective? Nobody comes in and says, you know, I'm actually really radical. I'm really on the outside of the market. No, all of us think that we're neutral, that we're moderate, that we're unbiased, and we just see things how they truly are. And yet there's so much diversity in how we see things and so much division in how we ex- experience and engage with the world that we are each limited in our perspective in what we perceive and process. And so none of us are truly n- neutral. None of us 
are truly faithless. The great author, pastor, theologian, Tim Keller says it this way. He says, our moral values and our belief about human nature, our beliefs about whether the material universe um, was its own cause or created by God, all of these fundamental assumptions about the realities, uh, excuse me, about um, the reality come through a combination of reasoning, evidence, and faith. That's how we sort through everything. So I don't know where you are, but maybe you came in today and you're very skeptical about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Or, or you're just even uh, opposed to it. They're like, I don't just assume because you showed up to church on Easter Sunday that you love and serve Jesus and believe uh, that he is who he says he is. And, and then, let's be clear too. This is a, a Christian holiday. This is God's people. This is where we come together and celebrate. So I, I'm also gonna imagine that, that a lot of us are people who trust Jesus. And so we're gonna look at things that we're like, oh no, I, I think I already know that, but they're things that we need to be reminded of. And maybe you're not hostile, maybe you're not um, uh, you know, openly opposed, but you're just kind of, kind of apathetic or maybe a bit indifferent. Like, hey, no, that, that's good for you, that, that's good for my aunt, that's good for my sister, that's good for my coworker, that's good for my parents, but you know, I kind of got my own thing or, or like, you know, that doesn't really matter a, as much. And so maybe Jesus being God doesn't seem to have any implications for you. So what we're doing today in gathering is, is I hope that you're, you're not expecting to hear something new. All that we're doing today is being reminded of what is actually true. We're going to fact check reality today as we look at God's word. And so if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, please turn to Matthew chapter 27. If you don't have a Bible, uh, verses will be up on the screen, but we also have uh, Bibles in the back that are a gift for you. You can just grab one on your way out, and, and that is our, uh, one of our gifts to you uh, today. And so we need to be reminded of what is true about God in this world, because we just easily forget Right? The pace of life in the last 12 months has been so fast that, that uh, we have already forgotten anything that happened like a week ago or three weeks ago or certainly a, a year ago. And so we need to be grounded in, in, in not getting distracted, discouraged, or even deceived. And I think all of us, no matter how we came in today, should be able to agree that we all have a sense of groaning that, that it shouldn't be this way. Whatever this way is, it's got to be something better. There needs to be something more. And so as we search for answers, as we seek comfort, and as we seek rest for our souls, we desire purpose, we desire wholeness. And, and we believe as Christians that rest, that purpose, that encouragement, that wholeness can be found in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to look at Matthew's gospel, one of Jesus' disciples writing about um, what happened nearly 2,000 years ago where resurrection was resisted, where resurrection was received by some and rejected by others. And then we'll, we'll close things out here. And so Matthew chapter 27, verses 62 through the end of the chapter, it says this, talking about the day after Good Friday. This is talking about Saturday. Says the next day, that is, after the day of preparation, chief priests and the Pharisees, okay, those are religious people coming together, gathered before Pilate, he's the governor um, of that area from Rome, and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. 
Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, he's risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. And Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Okay, so, so what's happening here? Like we said, this is Saturday after Good Friday. Jesus um, has died on the cross. He has suffered. It has been brutal. He was stabbed in the side. He was nailed in his hands and his feet, dead, buried, put in the ground. And you would think the opposition to Jesus would say, that's enough. We put him on the cross. We saw him die. We saw him buried. Like, let's, let's move on with life. That Jesus movement, that Jesus uh, revolution is certainly over. At the very least, their leader's dead and gone. And so we come to Saturday, which for the religious people at that time, for the Jews at that time, that was the Sabbath. That was the day of rest. That was the day where you don't do anything. Like, you think there was restrictions in phase negative two? Like, no, this was like, you, go, you can't go anywhere. Can't leave your house, can't do any labor, can't, you can't pick anything up, can't clean anything. Okay, maybe that sounds okay. But like, right, it was a, a restrictive day requiring mandatory rest. And yet we see in these verses, opposition to Jesus Christ never rests. On their day of rest, they're immediately gathering together, conspiring together, coming, uh, the religious leaders coming to the governor, and they're like, no, no, we want to make sure, like seeing him dead wasn't enough, uh, and, and they, they come to Pilate, the, the Roman governor, and, and I don't know if you know this, but you know, you know, the, the religious people and the government of the time didn't necessarily get along. Right? Government, society, culture, religion, like they don't always mix well. And so yet they come to, to Pilate because he was the one with authority. He was the one with troops and soldiers and all of the power of Rome. And, and even though they, they literally hated him and wanted to see him overthrown, they come to him reverently. Sir Pilate, can you, can you do us a solid and, and, and lock down this tomb for us? So while they go to the government that they can't stand with reverence, their king of God's people, who they reviled and had murdered, they call him an imposter. See, Jesus wasn't who he said he was. See, if you read the Bible or you know the Bible, you go through the accounts of Jesus' life and his preaching and his teaching, he was not just a good teacher. Yes, a, a great teacher. Sermon on the Mount, best sermon ever. But he was more than a teacher. He was more than a prophet. He claimed to be more than these things. He claimed to be a king, the king of God's people. He claimed to be God, the, the son of God, the eternal one. He claimed to be the one who would take away their sins, take away their brokenness, take away their shame. I and mean, that is a, a, a terrific claim. And he made it regularly. And they said, no, no, no. That's not who he was. See, the great author C.S. Lewis, right, who, who wrote The Lion, The Witch, and the Wardrobe, and, and that series, um, he said this about Jesus, that if you listen to what Jesus says, you either have to believe he's a liar, meaning he, he lied about being the Son of God, being the Messiah. You have to believe he's a lunatic, that he believed he was the Son of God. I mean, just kind of like your, like your average Branch Davidian or, you know, whatever cult of the, the day is that's popular, right? Or... If he's not a liar, if 
he's not a lunatic, then he's actually Lord. And that has implications. So for these Pharisees, it, they've made up their mind. Jesus is either a liar or a lunatic. We don't really care which one. He's just not Lord. And so their concern is this. Man, there was a lot of people following him. He had, he had these disciples that were following him. And, and, and while the disciples, as you kind of go through the, the, the Gospels, you'll read like, they were always hip to what Jesus was saying. The religious people, they paid very, very close attention. Book, chapter, verse on everything Jesus was saying. They're picking it apart. And they knew that Jesus multiple times had said, oh, by the way, I'm gonna die. But three days later, I'm gonna rise. And Jesus had this knack for doing what he said. And so while the Pharisees and the religious people weren't necessarily concerned that Jesus was gonna rise from the dead, they were concerned that his disciples were gonna steal the body and then come out and say, hey, guess what? Jesus is really alive. See, empty tomb. Can't find his body anywhere. It's certainly not over there where we hit it, right? Like, you know, like they just assumed that Jesus' disciples were so zealous that they would just propagate this amazing lie. But here's the deal, because Jesus didn't say like, I'll rise someday. He said, I'll rise after three days. Like, he's not just calling his home run. He's saying, no, it's gonna be off the left field wall and we've now exhausted all of my baseball knowledge. Okay, right, there's a wall, right? No, he called his shots. And so for, for the Pharisees, they're like, hey, if we can just have Rome put a guard in, if we could seal the tomb with a big rock, then, then we just got to run the clock out. I mean, the Pharisees are like, hey, we've got the ball, like we've got the lead, and we're just marching towards the end zone, and all we got to do is not fumble. All we got to do is not throw an interception at the two-yard line, right? Too soon? Eight years, guys? We're going to be okay on that one with the Seahawks in the Super Bowl? Okay. Two sports analogies. I think I'm done. All right. And so they knew they just had to wait out the clock. And then, and then Jesus is going to be proven to be a false prophet. Then everything he says is wrong. Nothing he says matters anymore because then he's just a lunatic. And so they're, they're driven by envy because Jesus had great power and great influence. And if Jesus says um, that he's God and he's really not, then they got nothing to worry about. And while they call Jesus the imposter, the reality is they're the imposter. They're the ones who believe that they are in control of all things. The religious people, the government, others, and we're not so different. Most of us are imposter king and queens that sit on our thrones and believe that we have a lot of influence and a lot of control over our lives until things happen that are out of our control and then we lose our minds because we realize how powerless we really are. And so for these Pharisees and for the religious people, they are conspiring against Jesus. And the reason they're conspiring is in response to great clarity from Jesus. Let's be really clear. Jesus multiple times said that he was going to die and he was going to resurrect. And even a few days earlier, one of his friends, Lazarus, had died and been in the tomb for four days and Jesus raised him. And people knew this story. They'd seen about that. So, so maybe like, like, while they're, they're not saying they're fearful that Jesus could do it, maybe in the back of their mind, they're like, what if? What if Jesus really is who he says he is? What if Jesus really does resurrect? See, a dead Jesus, super easy to deal with. 
just an interesting guy in history, taught a few things about loving God and loving your neighbor, overthrew some tables, did some miracles, maybe, you know, and then you're just like, okay, that was interesting. Let's just move on and let's keep, you know, trying to build Rome. That worked out well for everybody, right? But see, a living Jesus, a resurrecting Jesus, an alive Jesus, that has implications for our lives because it requires us to respond. And so they said that, hey, the first fraud was that Jesus would be, um, you know, it w- was the, uh, the king of God's people, the second that he would rise, and they're just concerned that the, the disciples are gonna make this happen. And, you know, that, that's still a popular idea today. Hey, maybe, maybe the resurrection of Jesus was faked. Maybe Jesus' disciples made that happen. Well, there's a problem with that. And a lot of that has to do with history and looking at the history of what happened to the disciples. See, if there's this great grand conspiracy of the disciples of Jesus Christ to say, let's have a resurrected Jesus and then let's write about it and talk about it and go from town to town and tell everybody to follow and worship that Jesus so that we'll have power and influence, well, then their plan was really terrible and did not work very well at all for them, period. Because without fail, except for John, all of them were martyred. So if your plan is influence and prosperity, but it leads to you also being crucified or also being boiled alive or also being exiled to an island, and not like a fun island, but like a terrible island, then you're doing conspiracy wrong, okay? You, you are, you're, you're not a good con artist at that point because it's not going well for you. Furthermore, the accounts we'll see of, of Jesus' resurrection all include women coming and meeting Jesus first. In the first century, ladies, um, y'all were second-class citizens. So I know there's complaints uh, about you know, equality and things of that nature now, and that's a whole other topic, but let's be clear. Um, you couldn't testify in court back then. And certainly, if you're gonna make a legend about a resurrecting God, you wouldn't use a couple of ladies because it'd be considered unreliable. And so there's a lot working and resisting Jesus actually being raised from the dead. And so the Pharisees do everything earthly possible to prevent any human means from the tomb being emptied. And so if they can just keep Jesus in the tomb for three days, like we said, they can run the clock out. And so, so Pilate agrees. He says, hey, take the troops, take the stone, and they seal it up, the tomb sealed. Nobody is coming to steal the corpse. We're talking Roman troops, swords, you know, armor, leather skirt, the whole nine yards, right? Uh, and, and they're there, trained assassins at the tomb. Nobody's getting in, and nobody is getting out of that grave. And so on the third day, we have this problem the tomb's empty, right? There's, there's no place we go to worship a dead Jesus. There's no tomb where everybody says, that's the tomb where Jesus is buried. That's where his body's at. So how'd that happen? Why'd that happen? So let's think about this like a, like a crime show or like um, maybe like a murder death podcast. I know um, a lot of people like to relax by listening to murder podcasts. 
I don't get that. Um, I've never been like, oh, this will help me go to sleep better. Uh, it just makes me like double lock my doors, okay? Um, but, but look at this like, like uh, evidence like, okay, wait, we, we knew Jesus dead, buried in the ground. We know that there's cops there. Uh, we, we know that it's sealed, but we got a problem because three days later, the tomb is gone. Mystery podcast, you know, episode 48, right, okay? Uh, and so here we are, and it starts to give the, the, the recounting of what happened here in chapter 28, verses one through 10. It says this. This is the next day, this is Sunday, this is, this is what we celebrate today. Now after the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Okay, here's the ladies showing up, probably wearing denim jackets like all of you are doing today. Y'all got the memo on that one. Okay, there we go. No denim jackets, all right. It says this, verse two. Behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended and, and from heaven came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. This is an angel. Verse three, his appearance was like lightning, his clothes white as snow. That means purity. And verse four, and for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know you seek Jesus who is crucified. He's not here, for he is risen. As he said, come and see the place where he lay, past tense. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I've told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. And Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. If you look back earlier in Matthew 27, verse 61, it says that Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were the last ones at the cross. They were the last ones there with Jesus as he died, after he died, last ones there. They are also the first ones to the tomb on Sunday morning, which for them was like Monday, first day of the week. They're, they're going to, 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 to see the tomb of Jesus. They might have been there to you know, do some stuff with the body, maybe have the soldiers roll the tomb away perhaps. Um, but regardless, these ladies, they showed up even as believers in Jesus, followers of Jesus, they showed up with an expectation of a dead Jesus. That's what they expected that morning. And so they come in somber. Their Saturday wasn't one spent in conspiracy um, with you know, government and religious leaders together. Their, theirs was one in, in, in confusion, in sadness, in grief. And they're like, we, were, we followed Jesus he said he was going to be a king. He, he, he was forgiving sins. He was healing people. Maybe they even knew Lazarus who raised from the dead. And so they're like, they're like, what now? We just saw all of society's power arrayed in one point in time to have Jesus murdered, canceled forever. And they show up. And they're fearful and they're concerned, but they're not ready to move on from Jesus. They saw the brutality of the cross. Their hope was dead, their future uncertain. Their Sabbath Saturday was not restful, it was mournful. And, and so they come to the tomb expecting um, to see Jesus dead. And as I said, if this was a legend or a myth, you don't have this detail in. It's not a couple of ladies, maybe some even that had um, 
checkered pass, if you will, you would have prominent men show up, men with good credentials, men with, you know, blue check marks on Twitter so they were verified, right? No, instead, it's, unfortunately for the time, second-class citizens coming in. And then this happens. They're coming to this quiet cemetery, garden, tomb area, and then an earthquake comes. The creator of the universe, as unsettled as these ladies are, the creator of the universe unsettles the ground, the tomb, uh, the rock rather, rolls away. Everything the worldly authorities did to, to prevent Jesus from being raised from the dead or even looking like he raised from the dead is completely undone because, I mean, the worldly authorities look pretty silly when they're like, we put a rock on it. And God's like, cool, I made the earth. Rock on, like what was their plan? I mean, their plan was, like, let's get this straight. If there's a God, and God is real, and Jesus is God, and Jesus is who he says he is, he says he's going to rise again, your plan was a couple dudes in leather skirts and a sword and a couple rocks? That's not a good plan. Like, opposition to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from a worldly perspective is irrelevant and absurd when compared to the resurrection power of the creator of the universe who's ready to unsettle our uh, presuppositions about our um, kingdom, about our uh, even own relevance in the world. And so what's also ironic is everything the Pharisees and the Romans did to prevent Jesus from rising or prevent even the idea that he could rise, all it actually did was provide credibility to the resurrection, to actually give extra witnesses. I mean, imagine if the ladies themselves had just come out and been like, hey, Jesus is gone. They're like, who are you again anyway? Who's your owner? But instead, we've got a couple of like certified state agents right next to the tomb. Everything they did to discredit Jesus actually served to give more credibility to the account of Jesus' resurrection. And so the stone is rolled away and angels just kind of sitting on it, just kind of like, yeah, this is fine. This is a good chair for me now since it's not blocking the tomb uh, anymore. Uh, and the, the ladies were there um, seeking Jesus. And what I love about the angel is he is so unthreatened by the soldiers he doesn't talk to them. He doesn't acknowledge them. The soldiers themselves, it says, are catatonic. Like, they're like, they're not moving. Because maybe I think they know. We got this sword. What's that going to do with the, the, the guy that's sitting here on the rock? And it says, it says that the angel was in brilliant clothing. The, 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 the word white there means purity, radiant. Like this is a messenger from God sent to give good news. And, and, and he's like... He's not even dealing with the soldiers because he knows the soldiers, they're there opposed to Jesus. He's like, I'm here from God and I have a message for those of you who are seeking hope in Jesus. He's not here. Come, come on inside. Come see the tomb. There's not a body here anymore. He, he's gone. In fact, um, the account that we see in the Gospel of Luke says the angel not only says he's not here, he says, why are you looking for the living among the dead? Like, 
God doesn't hang out in graveyards. See, God's a God who, when he created everything, created all good, he created, not a graveyard, he created a garden. And he says that history ends with a city with a great garden in the center of it, where life is enjoyed in its fullness, not, not memorials of death, but, but flourishing life now and forever. And so he speaks of, of Jesus and he says, do not be afraid. And I think that's a really good word, right? These ladies, he's like, ladies, you saw Jesus beaten. You saw Jesus crucified. You saw Jesus buried. Now you showed up and the, and, and the, the earthquake happened and the tomb rolled away and the soldiers are catatonic. The ladies aren't gonna be like, oh, this is cool. Like, no, they're probably terrified. He says, you have nothing to fear. And the reason, ladies, you have nothing to fear is because you're here seeking Jesus. Your hearts are for Jesus. Your desire is for Jesus. And so there's hope. He's like, you're afraid because you don't know what's next. But, I can, but he doesn't tell them necessarily what's next, but he has to tell them what's happened. He says, you're seeking Jesus who was crucified, past tense. But there's a Jesus who is risen. So Jesus is no longer defined by, his identity is not in the crucified one. Yes, we remember the cross each and every week when we take communion. Jesus' body broken for us. His blood shed for us. We believe Jesus is our substitute for our sin. Jesus is a sacrifice that, that deals with the wrath of God for our sin. And so while we remember the crucified Jesus, we worship the resurrected Jesus. Jesus is no longer the crucified one. He is the risen one. And then I love what the angel says here in verse six. He's not here for he's risen, what? As he said. He's back to Jesus called it. Jesus said this was gonna happen. Jesus is true. You can put your faith in Jesus. You can rely on Jesus. Even when it looks like death is going to reign and you're living in a forever Saturday after the crucifixion and the storms happen and you don't see any hope, he says, no, no, as he said, resurrection is coming. So we have hope, so we have joy, and he tells them he's not here, as we said. And so um, as he brings them into the empty tomb and has them look at that, I want us to know, yes, the empty tomb is incredibly significant for us. Back to the murder death podcast, evidence number one, empty tomb, right? No empty tomb. Jesus is as dead as your great-great-grandma. If your great-great-grandma is alive, I would love to meet her. That would be amazing. But we all know that our time is limited, and we will face death. And so if Jesus died and didn't rise, then the tomb is full. But we are not people who worship an empty tomb. We worship a resurrected Jesus. So there's more evidence, not just that Jesus isn't in the tomb anymore, because maybe, again, you could try to explain that, but like, like there's other religions that say that Jesus like, like didn't die on the cross, but just kind of got maimed a little bit and it was really rough for him and they kind of put him down and, and then like he uh, you know, was, was in the tomb by himself. I mean, beaten up, bloodied, rough, maybe snuck in a little essential oils with him, you know, and so you know, healing or something like that. He had a diffuser. Uh, and then like three days later, just kind of comes out, a little tired, you know, a little sore in the side from the stabbing he took. But if Jesus was just maimed, and somehow even with an earthquake, the tomb rolls out, and he's stumbling out all wrapped up looking like a mummy, you got a couple Roman soldiers there ready to finish the job. 
Or at the very least, go run and tell a Pharisee and say, um, the guy we thought was dead, he didn't, he didn't die, you think you buried him alive. And then there'd be the account of Jesus drug back into Jerusalem, everybody seeing him just filleted, destroyed, decimated. But that's not what we have. Because not only do we have an empty tomb, but in every account of the resurrection, there's more evidence than an empty tomb. There's a risen Jesus. Jesus appears to these women. These women have been given a message. Hey, go and tell people that Jesus is alive. Go tell the disciples that Jesus is alive. And as they walk in obedience to the message that Jesus is alive, they experience the presence of Jesus in their life. And it moves them in such a way not to, not to freak out, not to run away, but instead like, like to prove that Jesus isn't a ghosty ghost. Like they run up and it says they worship him at his feet. They treat him as a king. They give him the reverence you give to God alone. And they're there and again Jesus says, do not be afraid. And what I love about the, the journey that these ladies are on is it says that they went with fear and great joy however you're coming into today, I want you to know that faith and trust in Jesus is a life of fear and great joy. Because we're not yet home. Because there is brokenness and sin in the world. There are things that concern us. There are things that, that, that even cause us to, to distress at different times. And yet, because our faith is in a resurrected Jesus, we have great joy because we know no matter how bad things get in this life, there is more life in the life to come. That no matter how difficult things are now, that we've been called to endure, pointing others to the joy and the love and the hope of Jesus. And, and what I love about how Jesus here in verse 10, he tells them not only to be afraid, but to not be afraid rather, but he, he encourages them to continue on mission. And he says this, go and tell all of my minion soldiers to gather together and fight Rome. That's not what he says. He doesn't say, go tell my followers or my army or my subjects even. I mean, Jesus is a king, but he doesn't even say subjects. He says, go tell my brothers. Go tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they'll see me. Go tell my brothers and sisters the time of being exiled orphans is over. See, the message and, and the, the, the mission of Jesus is to, to call us who've been separated from God by our sin, who feel like orphans, who feel like we're estranged, who feel like we're people without a country, who feel like um, we are, are broken and beyond redemption, to come home, to not just be citizens, but to be welcomed into the forever family of God through Jesus Christ, who he says is gonna lead us home where God and his people dwell together. That's why we have hope in a, in a resurrected Jesus. Because our belief is not just in second chances. Not just in the idea of resurrection. It's not just um, in, in somehow, um, you know, believing that, you know, you can get a, a do-over. Yes, there's grace. Yes, there's second chances. But our, our hope is in a real event not an idea of resurrection, an event of resurrection that has implications for our life now and our life forever. And so the, the ladies go and you now have this scene where the tomb's been rolled away. I'm imagining the angel probably left as well. The soldiers are like, we, we gotta get out of here. 
So let's see how the soldiers responded to, to seeing an angel, the stone being rolled away, empty tomb, and a declaration that Jesus is alive. This is how they respond in verse 11 to the end, and then we're finishing up. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place, meaning everything we just read. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a significant sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were sleeping. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed, and the story has spread among the Jews to this day. See, a resurrected Jesus presents a lot of problems, as we've talked about, because it means that the religious people who've had such control over how you get to experience God, and the government that's had so much control over how you get to engage with the world, it means there is a power and an authority over and greater than both of them, and that is God in Jesus Christ. So it means that we can respect religious leaders and we can respect the government while revering and remembering that there's a God who created everything, who's greater than what we see before us. And so what's amazing about this is, so the, so the soldiers run off, they go to the chief priest, they're like, you're not gonna believe what's gonna happen. You're not gonna believe what we just saw. And it doesn't say the chief priests disbelieved them. It doesn't say, How, why'd you guys screw up? It doesn't say like, wait, well, what were you doing? Did you guys fall asleep? No, it says, oh, okay, interesting. Tomb's gone, or tomb's open rather, Jesus is gone. And their response isn't repentance. Their response isn't, I better rethink how I see the world. Maybe I'm not neutral in my perspective. Maybe I just got fact-checked by the fact that there's an empty tomb. And instead, they hold on to their denial of reality that they somehow still have control over the situation when clearly the kingdom of God wasn't going to be contained in a tomb. And so rather than embracing a universal truth, they do what so many of us do today, cling to our personal truth. I, I don't believe that. That's not my truth. That's not the way the world works. There is truth. Yes, there's our individual experiences they matter, our perspectives are, are unique and distinct, and that's fine. But there is truth. And if something is true, then it cannot be untrue. And so we have to be people that are able to look beyond just even our own perspectives and embrace what is universally true. And so they don't care about the truth, they only care how it's going to affect them. And so they decide to gather and conspire, and it says they pay a significant sum of money to, to buy their own version of the truth. Oh, I don't like the narrative? I'll buy the newspaper. Nobody reads the newspaper. I'll buy the website, right? Now I know the truth. Now I get to put out the truth. Well, no, again, as we come to these words, we come to the Bible, maybe you're like, well, yeah, just the, the powerful people wrote this down to control everyone. Well, no, again, people that wrote these words had no earthly power. They were in response to those who did. But their reliance was on one with eternal galactic power that created everything. And so no amount of money you can spend can change the truth. Oh, it might give you like a good defense if you're a lawyer, right? If you get in legal trouble, right, you can buy a better defense, but it can't buy you the truth. 
And so they hope to explain the empty tomb because they can't deny it. And what's interesting is they come up with a lame gospel, a lame story, a lame batch of good news, right? All right, the, the guards, they saw and experienced something great and powerful, but they trade it for the comfort of the familiar. And as they, as they, they trade for like, you know, all right, we'll just get paid off and we'll just do what the government and the religious leaders said and we'll go back to the status quo. We'll go back to normal. Anybody want back to normal because normal's great. No, normal was not great for them. And what's wild is like they don't even get a great story. The Pharisees wrote a false gospel. They said, you guys fell asleep. And the disciples showed up and took the body. Like, if you're the guards, can you be like, well, uh, there's like eight of us, 10 of us, but like 50 disciples showed up and they all had clubs and swords and all sorts of things and they totally overwhelmed us and we fought like heck, but man, you know, they just were stronger than us and then they, they rolled this tomb away. No, no, uh. Their story is, we were all asleep. All of us, even Carl. Man, Carl's up all the time, right? You know, we're all asleep. And then while we were asleep, disciples showed up and rolled like a Volkswagen-sized rock away. And none of you woke up. Like they couldn't take melatonin before they went to bed, right? Like there's, there's like, where they popped a few Ambien and they're just like, oh, wow, I don't know what, what happened, right? Like, and, and so again, back to the Murder Death podcast. And you're on there and you're like, so here's the thing. So the guards said, their account of things was that um, they were all asleep and then the, the disciples rolled uh, the tomb away and took the body out. But here's the thing. How'd they know the disciples showed up and rolled the tomb away if they were asleep? Oh, there's a plot hole, okay? Because it's a dumb story and it's made up. And it says it's been going on, like at the, the reading and the writing of Matthew, uh, nearly a generation later, still saying that same lame story. Because if Jesus is dead, you don't have to listen to him. If Jesus is dead, you, you, you don't have to respond to anything he said. If Jesus is dead, you don't have to repent of sin. If Jesus is dead, you get to still pretend that you are the king and queen of your own domain and you can have your own truth. But if Jesus is alive, then he has to be responded to on the terms that he said. And so, there's no hope found in a dead Jesus because that means that you're still in your sins. It means that your shame for what's been done to you or what you've done is still there. It hasn't been taken away because Jesus is just an example of sacrifice, not an effective one that actually makes us new. We believe Jesus died for us and that he rose again and that that's good news. Uh, theologian John Stott says it this way. The essence of sin is humans substituting ourselves for God. The essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us. That's what we believe Jesus did. That the gospel is that God is good and that we've all failed and that Jesus has shown up and he's lived the perfect life that we couldn't live, that he's died the death that we all deserve for our sin, and that he did rise again so that we could have new life now and forever. And our evidence is not just an empty tomb, but is Jesus ruling and reigning in the world? Is, is Jesus, um, there's another account that says he appeared even up to 500 people at once, and they said, hey, you, you got doubts? Go talk to those people. There's evidence of Jesus' resurrection. And so our hope as Christians is in this historical fact that while everyone else in the story is dead and gone, that Jesus is alive. 
And so I want you to ask yourself, what is your response to the resurrection? Are you going to resist and do everything you can to, to assume that Jesus is still in that tomb? And I pray that God would just overwhelm you and, and make you look as foolish as those guards in that stone did. Are you going to reject that it happened and somehow buy into some lame gospel, some, some lame, like, like empty gospel that just says Jesus is still dead and there's no hope and this life is all that we get and live in despair when lockdowns come or when you lose your job or, or, or when families disintegrate and you have nothing else to hold on to or maybe everything's going great but at the end of your life, health is gone and vitality is gone and that's it. That's not good news. You might be able to have influence and power and be in charge or be in control for a while, but eventually you will lose control. And it's in those places of weakness. It's in those places of reliance where we get an opportunity to repent, to turn from believing that we are the kings and queens of our own lives, to, to receive what Jesus has done for us on the cross, to celebrate and rejoice and, and live life, yes, with fear, but also great joy that we serve a God who's alive, who's promised us life now and hope forever. See, everything that we believe in is based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. No resurrection, no hope. We read these verses when we began in 1 Corinthians 15. It said, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching in vain and your faith is in vain. Later in 1 Corinthians 15, it says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, then we of all are people the most be pitied. Verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. See, the Christian faith from its beginning has relied on and rested on and rejoiced in the literal physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. So that in our lives, we can have the promise of resurrection as well. That we can enjoy the best stories. And the best stories are, are, are usually great because they have the benefit of being true. And so here at Mercy Fellowship, our faith is that we've been saved by Jesus' work and not our own. That we are being changed by Jesus' grace. And we live on Jesus' mission, inviting anyone and everyone and reminding ourselves, no matter what has happened to us, what is happening to us, or what we'll experience, that we can endure and have faith and joy in life when we simply trust Jesus. Let's pray.